This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. Today's episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank believes that hard work works, and for everyone working toward a goal, U.S. Bank is here to help. And if you would, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Coming up, my conversation with Maria Bartiromo, host of three popular Fox News and business shows. This week, the headlines were dominated by Robert Mueller. Was he quietly recommending impeachment by what he said and didn't say? House Democrats want to move ahead with impeachment, at least a growing number do. But there is a bigger story out there that is not getting covered. And with Maria Bartiromo, we're going to find out what the real deal is, the real scandal that still remains largely uncovered, but won't for long because of people like Maria Bartiromo. But first, when I look at the week ahead, here's what to look out for in addition to all that impeachment talk. Trade uncertainty reigns as never before. A China deal looked like a certainty several weeks ago. Now people are no longer certain that a deal can be reached, a comprehensive agreement can be reached in the next few weeks or months. Uncertainty hurts the stock market. It hurts the bond market. It hurts business investment, which means it's going to be a dampener on the economy. Two reports are coming out next week, one on manufacturing, another on services. These come from purchase managers. They're seen as good indicators of how the economy is doing and will do. Those two reports should be fairly positive. They won't be reflecting the new uncertainties, the new clouds that have come up in recent days. Maria and I spoke shortly before Robert Mueller made his public statement. It doesn't change the nature of our conversation. Well, our special guest today is Maria Bartiromo. Mornings with Maria, Maria Bartiromo's Wall Street, Sunday Morning Futures. Amazing portfolio, amazing number of hours of broadcast each week, and amazing preparation. You have to do interviews on each of these shows. You just can't read off the uh, teleprompter. So your upbringing, though, I think really tells a lot about your ability to do all this work. Tell us about the toughest industry in the world, the restaurant industry, because what you did yesterday doesn't matter. It's what you're doing now and for tomorrow. It's true, Steve. Thank you so much for having me, uh, first of all. And uh, my upbringing certainly did shape me, and it made me the woman who I am today. I totally agree with that. It was a very much hardworking ethic that I grew up with. My dad owned the Rex Manor in Brooklyn. I was the coat check girl. We would do weddings and bar mitzvahs and birthday parties, and uh, I would always check the coats. And my mom worked there. My sister worked there. My sister was a hostess. My brother was a waiter. We all worked at the family restaurant. And so I watched my father you know, cooking in the kitchen with a bandana on his head, sweating. I watched my mom work two jobs. It was always, you know, go to work. Um, and that was the theme. To, to If you wanted to do something in your life, you needed to work hard for it. And so my parents instilled that in me at a very young age, and that's why I do work really hard. And I, I'm lucky because I love what I do. And uh, I think that if you can find something that you love what you do, you will be able to work hard. And then you'll maybe be in the right spot at the right time and get some luck as well. But in a nutshell, my grandfather, Carmine Bartiromo, came to this country 
1906. First thing he did was uh, go to the army and fight with the Allies against the Germans in World War II. He did that. He came back from fighting in, uh, in World War II and then built a restaurant. He used to come to America um, on, a, on a ship called the Rex from time to time. And so he built the restaurant. He was a bricklayer in Italy. He, that means he was a construction worker. But he, he and his cousin literally, brick by brick, built a restaurant and named it the Rex Manor after that ship. So I'm very proud of that. And that's how I grew up. And that's who I grew up watching. My grandfather, my uncles, my parents work incredibly hard. That definitely shaped me. And vacations, family vacations, holiday times were spent. At the restaurant. <laughs> if we wanted to see my dad, we really had to be at the restaurant. We did have a few vacations. We used to go upstate to uh, uh, a couple of different uh, vacation spots, Villa Balieri, I remember um, lovingly. Anyway, in Villa Roma, that I would go with my parents uh, for a week in the summer. But for the most part, I was at the restaurant during vacations when my family was there, and that's when we were there at holidays. We were always working. Tell us, though, uh, about your first job. Well, my first job was the coat check girl at the Rex, but then I had another job at Kleinfeld's department store. Are you asking me about that one? Yeah. My Kleinfeld's wedding dress uh, store job was really fun. I was a stock girl. I was just a teenager. So I was the stock girl, which meant I would go into the bridal rooms and I would pick up the dresses after the brides tried them on and I would bring them back to the stock room. Remember, these dresses are very heavy wedding dresses. They've got tulle and and veils and all uh, lots of heavy material. I used to, before I uh, brought the dresses back to the stock room, I would secretly try them all on. And I was always, I mean, I was just a kid. I was always dreaming of my own big white wedding. So <laughs> when my boss caught me in a full getup of a gown and the, <laughs> and the veil and the crown and the whole nine yards, when she caught me for the third time, she simply said, Maria, go home. Don't come back. Go home. And so she fired me on the spot. I got fired from one of my first jobs. Stock girl at Kleinfeld's wedding dress shop. I cried all the way home. I couldn't believe I got fired. I cried and cried and cried. I came home, told my mom. And my mom said, well, you learned a valuable lesson there. And I said, what? In my, in my tears. And she said, do your job. When you get a job, you're there to do your job, not try stuff on. Now you know better for the next time. And she was right. I learned very early in my career to do my job. You learned early, too, that there's no such thing as permanent success. And one of the raps on you as your television career is you're always striving to get the next interview, the big interview. Well, it's like the restaurant. Yesterday's meal doesn't count. you got to prepare for today's and for tomorrow's. It's true, and the news moves so fast. It's been one of the most exciting moments in time. I'm really feeling fortunate to be able to have this front row seat to cover all of the things that I'm covering. I've got you know new guests every day, important guests. I cannot waste their time, so I need to know my stuff. I need to be informed about these subjects because you can't fool these people in any way, shape, or form, and make sure to ask the questions that the American people want asked and want answered. Melinda Gates has a book out called The Moment of Lift, and she recounts the story when she graduated from uh, college when, uh, in uh, computer science. She had a job interview at IBM, and the woman recruiter said to her, if you can get the job, she had mentioned she's looking at Microsoft, this new startup Microsoft, she said, take it rather than work at IBM. 
and she said you should take it because you have more opportunity at a startup than you will at an established company like this. You had a similar experience in your career in TV. You had an internship first at CNN before, uh, which was not the big three in terms of uh, networks. Walk us through that. Well, when I was at NYU, in order to get points, it was a class that you could take. It was an internship. So I applied for an internship, uh, and I really wanted to work at one of the big three, ABC, CBS, or NBC. But I was chosen to work at CNN um, for, this, for this internship. And so I reluctantly took it, and in retrospect, it was the best gift I could have been given because it wasn't a union shop and I was able to do everything. So going in as a production assistant, I was ripping scripts. I was a floor director. I was whatever they wanted me to do, I did. And so then after the internship was over at the end of the summer, um, I didn't have a job. So I asked, can I please stay on and work in whatever division they would give me? I happened to meet someone in the business division in the elevator who said, come see me later. I went, I took some tests, I had to take a writing test, they hired me. I actually started on my birthday, September 11th, 1989, at CNN. And I worked at CNN for almost five years as a writer, producer, I, I moved up the, up the ladder. This was a different CNN than it is today, Steve, because this was Ted Turner's CNN. This was an entrepreneurial company. We were doing things there that nobody had ever done before, and that is cover a news story as it's happening. I was a production assistant in the fall of 1989 when the first Gulf War was going on, and bombs were going off, and Bernard Shaw was under the bed in Baghdad saying, bombs are now going off. And CNN was covering it as it was happening. So all the networks went to CNN. Exactly. Night. It was the thrill beyond thrills because it was actually teaching me something that I had never seen before, covering a story as it was happening. And it served me well just a few la years later when I went to the floor of the New York Stock Exchange to cover the stock market as it was actually moving. So you uh, rose up to be an executive producer at a fairly young age, and, uh, but you decided you wanted to be in front of the camera. And after hours, you took the initiative to put together an audition tape. Tell us about that, why you uh, decided you wanted to be in front rather than behind. Well, I'll never forget the day that Lou Dobbs, then my boss, came to me and said, look, we're changing the assignment desk um, and you're going to be moving. So at that point, I was an assignment editor on the business desk. So what I would do is I would come up with story ideas. I would go out, interview people, and then somebody else would go on the air with my piece. I would write the piece for Terry Keenan, may she rest in peace, Jan Hopkins, Beverly Shook. They were wonderful women. They were the true first pioneers in business news, and I would write their scripts. And I remember Lou telling me, Marie, you're never going to get anywhere in this business if you're always behind the shadows. So I'm moving you off of the assignment desk and up to EP, morning show. So now I'm an, an EP, executive producer of the morning show, uh, business morning and business day. We had two shows at that time. So I have to be in at midnight, and then I'm done by 9 a.m. And even though it was a better position, it was more money, I knew that I had actually found what I loved doing, and that was going into the field, interviewing people. Very quickly, I started putting together a phenomenal Rolodex. I knew who to call when a story broke. I knew who to call when something I needed to know was out. And I was going to lose all that because now my position would be I would be in the control room, you know, speaking to my anchor in her ear, in his ear, 
um, and just putting a rundown together. It wasn't going out in the field anymore. So I said to Lou, okay, look, thank you for the uh, promotion, but the truth is I really like going into the field. Would it be okay as after my shift is over, I could still go down to Wall Street firms and interview economists when the economic data comes out? And so I went back, I did some of the pieces that I wrote, and I reread them with me on camera. And the only place I wanted to work was CNBC because that was the only other network that really treated business news, business information fairly. And it wasn't just the Dow and the NASDAQ every, every day, but they actually reported on business news. And I got a job at CNBC and went on the air. And Lou Dobbs said, you are making a big mistake. He did. I said to him, Lou, can I speak to you at 1 o'clock? To, uh, I need to, to speak to you today at 11 o'clock. And he said... Okay, so I go into his office at 11, and he said, Maria, I thought we said 1 o'clock. Come back at 1. I said, okay, but it's really just to tell you that I'm leaving, Lou. I got a job at, at CNBC, and they want to put me on camera. And he said, Maria, this is the biggest mistake you're ever going to make in your career. They're nobody. You should not do this. I could totally understand what he was saying because I was a key figure at CNN Business News, and we were all proud of what we were doing, but I need to follow my gut, and I did. And it was actually one of the best moves I've ever made. So how did, it, how did you become the first person, man or woman, to be a live reporter on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange? How did that come about? I had already been at the exchange as a producer. So I had some familiarity with the exchange, and I had some friends down there already. Dick Grasso knew me. When I got to CNBC and I was a field reporter for the first year, we decided we wanted to start a new program. We were going to call it Squawk Box, and we wanted to be different. We wanted to be on the floor of the exchange. So I went to Dick, and I asked him, along with some of my colleagues, um, the producer of the show, and we said, can we actually take the camera down to the floor? And he loved the idea. He wanted to demystify what was going on on the floor of the exchange. Unfortunately, a lot of others did not. And I did have a few people who really did not want me there. Well, yeah, you, the, the cliche about pioneers taking arrows is absolutely true in your case. And uh, you've made mention in the past that going on the floor of the exchange wasn't just a boys club with testosterone. This was testosterone on steroids, if there is such a thing. Go through then. First, a fellow named Mike Robbins. <laughs> I don't know how you found Mike Robbins, Steve, but yes, Mike Robbins was one of those people who did not want me on and the floor. And he was important. He was on the board of the exchange. He just wasn't on the guy wandering around the floor. That's right. He had a huge business. It was a $2 broker business, they used to call it. And right. one of his biggest accounts was GE. So one day I was at the, on the floor about two months and I heard that my boss's boss was coming down to the exchange, Jack Welch, the chairman and CEO of GE. Then GE owned CNBC. And I thought, wow, this is such a great break for me. My huge big boss is coming down to the floor of the exchange and I'm going to be able to be the one to explain what goes on at the GE post. He's going to love this. I had already met the specialist uh, in GE who really took me under his wing and explained to me how the flow of the stock happened every day, who were the big buyers and where the flow was, what he looks at. And so I went over to him to ask him if he could tell Jack Welch the same thing later on in the week if I brought Jack over to the post. Would he explain all of that? So I went over to him and I, and I went by the GE post and I saw that there weren't a lot of people around. There were like 20 people in earshot and he did not look busy. So I said, you know what? I want you to know that tomorrow or later in the week, Jack Welch is coming. Well, Mike Robbins was in that crowd, and Mike Robbins was not standing too far away from where I was trying to have the conversation with the specialist, the market maker in GE. He stops everything, 
yells at me. What are you doing here? Run along. This is not for your little TV show. This is real business we're conducting here. You don't belong here. Run along. And you know, I always say this when I tell this story. You know the feeling you get when you're so shocked. You've got, you know, knots in your stomach and you're unsure of what to do. So I looked at him. I stopped and I said, don't speak to me that way. And basically, I did run along. I left. But I came back, and I kept coming back. And yes, I did bring Jack Welch over to the post later in the week, and he did get a full scope of what was going on. But later that day, I called Dick Grasso. And I said, you know, Dick, I don't know who this guy is, but he walks around like he owns the place. And he, he's always yelling at me, making these harassing comments. You gave us the ability to be down here. Why must I have to deal with this one guy who absolutely hates me? I mean, literally, Steve, I would walk around the building not to pass Mike Robbins because he would always make a mean comment to me. So Dick says to me, Maria, I understand. And he would tell people not to talk with you. Exactly, exactly. So Dick said to me, then Dick educated me. Dick said, Maria, I understand what you're saying. The problem is he's on the board and he doesn't want you down here. You're right. And so then when I realized he was on the board, I realized, well, you know what? He's basically ruining my cred on the floor because anybody who sees me, whenever he sees me talking to anybody, that guy gets his head ripped off later on. So it was like destroying all my sources. So I really just did not want to see Mike Robbins. And then, you know, fast forward to the dot-com boom and then the dot-com bust. Everybody was losing money. The market was cratering. He kept making comments to me. I mean, this went on years. And one day I had to, he always had the same comments for me when I would pass him on the floor. He would be like this, ha, save your money. Like as if save your money, you're not going to be anything or make it anywhere. So you better just save your pennies. So I'm rushing to my spot during a, a day that the market is crashing. Dot com bust is on. And I could not go around the building. I had to walk direct. So I had to walk right in front of him. And sure enough, on cue, he says to me, ha, save your money. I turned around to him and I said, no, you save your money. And I thought, yes, I just got him. I, at least I had an answer for him. And so this went on. This kept going on until finally Mike Robbins left the floor. He, and I thought, oh, I'm so happy I outlived Mike Robbins. He's leaving the floor. He's resigning. I'm, I'm good. I don't have him on my back anymore. Life goes on. Then I go to a party with Bob Hormatz at Goldman Sachs. Bob says to me, come to a, a party that I'm having at Goldman. It's my goodbye party at Daniel Restaurant. Very nice place. It was filled with the big hitters on Wall Street. I walk in and I'm thinking, oh, this is great. I'm going to make lots of sources here. Sure enough, corner of my eye, who do I see coming at me? Mike Robbins. I, I say, you know what? I'm out of here. I don't want to be here when he yells at me in front of all these people and embarrasses me now in front of all the partners at Goldman Sachs. I start backpedaling my way out. I want to leave the party immediately. I get the tap on the shoulder. Maria, it's Mike Robbins. I said, oh, hello. He said, look, I just want you to know I'm sorry for harassing you all those years. I still haven't seen your little TV show, but I do read your column in Business Week. You're doing a good job. And I said, wow. Thank you, Mike. And I shook his hand, and that was that. And I was happy to have a, a truce and a peace between Mike Robbins and myself. And, and there was another incident, the Selden incident, where you're on TV, and he assaults you. He Walk did. Us through that. Selden Clark, uh, all I could say is I wish him well. Selden Clark was mad at my reporting on AIG. 
It was a very busy time at the AIG Post, and I was always right there. It was right near my position, and I always knew everything that was going on in AIG. I'm reporting a negative story about AIG. I'm live on the air. They had these um, handheld devices. It sort of looks like a little, like an iPad, but it's a lot thicker, and the traders would walk around with these so that they could put their orders right into the machine. Well, as I'm reporting on AIG, Selden Clark comes from behind and rams, rams the metal, you know, trading thing that they carry into my back. So much so that I actually, I had to react on air. I'm like, whoa, oh my God. I had to go to medical later. I had to take the next day off. He got suspended. Selden Clark got suspended. It was rough and tumble down there for sure, but I just want to stress that I actually made a lot of friends down on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. There's an incredible amount of camaraderie down there. When I got married, I was talking to one of the traders, and unbeknownst to me, they were putting a ball and chains on my ankle so that I couldn't move. That was what they did with their people who they loved. So I think eventually I had a lot of friends and, and, and garnered a lot of respect down there, but it definitely was hard getting started. Well, when you left, they, they gave you the clap off. They did. They gave me the clap off and I cried. I walked in. I had to be on air in like 10 minutes. I walked in on the floor. They all stopped. I mean, all the traders right by me, they all stopped and they just clapped. And I was so touched by that clap off. Uh, I know I have that on video of me crying. I couldn't believe that they did that. They were real. There's so many wonderful people on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. Even till today, I have some very good friends there. But while you were doing this, you recognized that even though these people were doing big trades and GE, AIG, and the like, they were missing the big picture. And you could get an advantage by recognizing what was shaping their world in a way that they didn't recognize. Walk us through that. That is exactly right, Steve, because what I found out very soon into my time at the New York Stock Exchange was that the traders didn't ever know the why. All they really knew was the what. So in other words, I could walk into the post of IBM and one of the traders could say to me, I've got 4 million shares for sale. I could walk into a post of whatever, ABC, and they could say, I've got 2 million shares to buy. That told me that that stock was going to open up higher. IBM was going to open up lower. They always knew the flow. They knew who was buying and who was selling and by how much. They never knew why. And that was where I came in. So at one point, I realized I know more than these guys about what's going on. And once I had that in my head and I realized that they actually had no idea what the big picture was, they only knew the flow. I knew that that flow information was real important. I wanted to know that flow information, but I also needed to know the why. And those were sources away from Wall Street that I would get. And that's where I came in. People would ask me. Your value added. Right, value add. (laughs) And uh, one of your big achievements, tell us about breaking open the morning call. I am very proud of uh, what we did with the morning call. Every morning, I would get into work, and the first thing that I would do is I would call a couple of sources that I had on different trading desks. And little by little, I worked my way into getting every firm's research call every morning. Basically, as you know, years ago, research was very, very market-moving. And if you had an analyst that they call the axe, if you had the axe in the stock, make a move on that stock – you knew that stock was going to move. In other words, an influential analyst. So I would call different trading desks. They would not release that information until 
after 10 a.m., after the market was open. But by that time, the stock had already gotten away from you. So, for example, if Goldman Sachs upgrades IBM, that stock is going to move. That analyst is considered the axe in the stock. He knows best. He's got the best relationship. If he changes his rating on that stock, it's going to move. My goal was to get that research information at the same time the big institutional money players were getting it. They were paying big money to get that research. I wanted to put the individual investor on the same playing field as the institutional investor to get that morning research. It took time, but eventually I got it. I would call every trading desk and I would say, what are you guys pushing today? What is your research telling you today? And little by little, I would say, I would get Goldman is upgrading IBM. Merrill Lynch is downgrading ABC. Jeffries is doing this. You know, Prudential's doing that. And every morning I would break open that morning call. And that was really great for investors because it democratized democratized information. And it gave the individual investor the same information that the institutional player had paid big money for. A lot of the firms didn't want to give it up, but I managed to get sources on every trading desk so that I could get their research call. Now, over time, despite this great success, you felt things were starting to get stale. Tell us what led you to that conclusion and then to the conclusion that politics and policy you had to master that if you're really going to uh, be the reporter you wanted to be. Well, you're absolutely right, Steve. And I, and I think that when um, I was at CNBC during the 90s, it was an incredible moment in time, whereas we were embarking on a new era of technology, changing the way we live, of, of the dot-com boom. And so people wanted information and they were trading on it immediately. Over time, that changed, and people became too short-term focused. And it was all about what is the company going to make in the next three months? What is the stock going to do in the next three seconds? And I started to get, frankly, bored. And I started to feel that I wasn't growing anymore. Does it really matter that a company's going to make $1.50 in the next three months? I mean, does it really matter that the stock is going to move in the next week? No. Most investors I recognized wanted a long-term plan for their money. CEOs, too, I was hearing increasing from CEOs, don't give me the whisper number. I don't care. I'm not going to give you near-term guidance. I'm going to tell you what my long-term plan is for investors and how you could actually see growth at this company. So it began to dawn on me that most smart people that I was talking to did not want this trader mentality, sports-like mentality around the stock market. It worked in the 90s, but it was no longer working. Well, technology in effect meant you didn't need to watch cable anymore to get the instant stock quote. That's exactly right. With your handheld. And you can see it, the change on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. When I was there at its peak, there were 5,000 bodies on the floor distributed around five different rooms. Today, there's 500 people at the Stock Exchange. I mean, it's quite extraordinary. All of the extra rooms have closed. It's just one main room right now because technology. It almost seems it's just there for TV. It does, because you can get all of that done electronically. And so that's what happened. And I think at at one point I said to my boss at CNBC, you know, I think we need to go longer term. I think we should do stories about long-term growth and not be so focused on what's going to happen overnight, what's going to happen in the next three seconds. And frankly, Steve, he disagreed with me. He said, no, 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 keep doing it this way. We have to talk to the trading desk. I said, there's more to the world than the trading desk. No, 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 we have to talk to the trading desk. And so that's when I first realized that maybe I had hit some ceilings at CNBC. I had been there 20 years, nice round number. You start thinking about things. And 
I started to get interested in what was going on politically, and I wanted to create a program that put politics on the same playing field as economics. How do you bring politics and economics together? And it happened to be that Roger Ailes at the time, uh, I'd seen him and he made me a, a great offer that I could not refuse. With just that, he wanted to have a Sunday morning program on Fox News that brought economics and politics together. And I'm happy to say that Sunday Morning Futures was born as a result of that conversation that I had with Roger. And it's the highest rated on cable all weekend, on many weekends. So I'm proud that it actually resonated. I also wanted to help build something that he was building, and that was Fox Business Network. And I knew that CNBC could use some competition because I knew that all of the sources that I had spoken with in the prior year were telling me, you guys are too short-term oriented. Who cares about the whisper number? We're not in the 90s anymore. So I had a hunch, I followed my gut, and I left CNBC. Now, you achieved great success at Fox, including uh, moderating three debates. Uh, people forget that even one time, a Republican audience booed you because when one of your questions showed you were doing your job right. Um, but uh, let's get to, which is perhaps your finest hour in journalism. What happened 2015, 2016, 2017? What made you realize, walk us through the election after the election, when you grasped that the real story was the story behind the story everyone thought was there, the Russian collusion. Walk us through that. Yeah. Steve, I had been having every week um, congressmen on my Sunday Morning Futures program who were leading congressmen who had seen the redacted material, seen the uh, confidential classified documents that the House of Representatives was trying to get from the FBI. And increasingly, in the early months of 2017, after the president fired Jim Comey, I had had these congressmen on every Sunday. So little by little, throughout 2017, in the beginning of the year, I hit on something that I just couldn't believe. First, I got a tip from someone, and I started to follow it through. And this person told me, Maria, I want you to know that the FBI and the DOJ and a handful of individuals in, in both of those places tried to attempt a coup on this president. And it was as close as a coup as anyone had ever seen. I couldn't believe what this person was telling me. So I started following that story. I would have people on like Devin Nunes, who was then the chairman of the Intel Committee, John Ratcliffe, who was a former prosecutor. These two individuals had seen all of the classified documents they knew what had happened, and they were telling me as much as they could tell me, you know, without breaking any, any rules in terms of classified information. Little by little, what I pieced together was that there was a cabal of people at the top of the FBI who wanted to stop Donald Trump and did not want him to become president. And they went through incredible efforts from wiretapping, informants, uh, a media leak strategy, to stop him from becoming president, and then after he was duly elected, to take him down from the presidency. It was extraordinary. I went with this story over and over again through the eyes of these congressmen. Of course, I couldn't say definitively there was no collusion, but I never believed that there was ever collusion. I needed more sources to tell me that, and I needed 
we had a special counsel. I didn't want to get ahead of the special counsel, Robert Mueller report, but I knew in my heart of hearts what had gone on because of these guests that I had had on on Sunday Morning Futures. So I started to follow this with a real reporter's nose. And it was just an extraordinary story. Um, George Papadopoulos, how they threw informants at him. They actually got him to go work for a, a firm that was uh, attached to the to the Western Intel, the FBI, and the UK Intel as well. Uh, this uh, Center for International Law they Practice. They tried to honey trap him. Exactly, exactly that too. First, they reached out to him on LinkedIn after he was working for the Ben Carson campaign. Ben Carson drops out January 16. He doesn't have a job. He gets an outreach from on LinkedIn from the Center for International Law Practice. They say, oh, we love your work. We want you to work here. We see you don't have a job now. He takes the job. He goes working for them. Three months in, March of 16, he says, you know what? I'm going to leave. I'm quitting. I'm going to go work for the Trump campaign. They say, well, wait a second. Now, who does this when you tell your employer you're quitting? Before you quit, we really want to send you to Rome because we really want you to meet some important people. They're going to be great for you in your career. So don't leave yet. Okay, I'll go to Rome. He goes to Rome. He meets this guy named Mifsud. Mifsud is a, a, a spy, an intel executive from Italy, who his name was written all over the Robert Mueller report as a Russian agent. He actually was an agent of Italy, but that's a whole other conversation. He drops a bomb in George Papadopoulos' lap one night at dinner, and he says to him, you know, the Russians have Hillary Clinton emails, and they're going to release them. He's expecting Papadopoulos to go back and tell Trump. He doesn't. He just holds the information. Then he's got more informants coming at him. He's got Downer from the UK. He's got somebody from Australia. He's got somebody from the US, all calling George Papadopoulos, who basically is a nobody, but who's about to work for the Trump campaign. And they're saying, we love your work. Come to the UK, to this conference. Come to London. Come here. All with these, you say honeypot, they threw this woman, Azra Turk, on him, who was a Turkish woman, but she was actually working along Western intel. We're not sure if she worked for the FBI or the CIA, but she was working for U.S. intelligence. She was absolutely beautiful, done up, glamorous, and he shares with her, after a night of drinking and dinners, that the Russians have Hillary Clinton's emails. He shares with her what Misfit told him. And that's how they trapped him. And so then, oh, there's something else. He goes and he meets with another Intel source who says to him, you know, your consulting business has been so great. We really value your work and we want you to work with us. I have to pay you for it. Here's $10,000 in cash. And so Papadopoulos says, wait, what? Oh, okay. So he accepts the cash. Then as the night goes on, he realizes Somebody I don't even know just gave me $10,000 in cash. This is not good. The light bulb goes over the head. He flies to Cyprus and he gives it to his lawyer. He leaves the $10,000 in Greece with his lawyer. He gets on a flight to go back to Dulles to Washington. As soon as his flight lands in Dulles, guess what happens? Five FBI agents arrest him looking for money. It was total entrapment. uh, He didn't have the money. Then they question him all night. And that that 10000 by the way, 
you're supposed to declare on a form if you have more than ten thousand in cash. So, so that's setting he, them up. There was a setup. So, but 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 these are tools. These are tools, Steve, that are used at the highest of levels in our intel divisions in the U.S. government. These are tools, informants and 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 wiretapping. These are tools used for terrorists. The, the cabal of people at the top of the FBI and the DOJ used our most important, most sophisticated tools on George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. Why? Because they were members of the Trump campaign. So I, I was finding out little bits and pieces of this story as it was developing over 2017, as more was coming out, as these congressmen were demanding documents, demanding uh, and and. Was able were able to explain the story to me, and I kept talking about it on the air, and I got slammed on Twitter. I got slammed by colleagues. People were like, "Maria, stop! Don't talk about this." And I kept saying to my friends and my colleagues, "You need to stop dancing around this. You need to stop tiptoeing around this. This is the biggest scandal we've ever seen." And you know, they, they to to spy on the Trump campaign to take this guy down went to extraordinary lengths. You will see the Inspector General report out soon. And in that IG report, we're going to see more about the media leak strategy. Whereas these individuals, and I'm talking about Peter Strzok, Andrew McCabe, Jim Comey, Lisa Page, what they would do is they would leak a story to Yahoo, and then they would use that, and then it was published. And then once it was published, they would use that as evidence to get a wiretap on Carter Page. So it was just, and then they misled the FISA court, which is exactly what William Barr, the attorney general, is looking at right now. Um, you took flack. You were called a kook. You, as you mentioned, back off of it. Uh, sort of Wood, Woodward Bernstein moment. What kept you going? It was very difficult because I had my own frustrations. I, ha- I was very frustrated with the fact that I knew this was happening and, and I, I couldn't express it the way I wanted to because I didn't have the support of colleagues and I didn't have the support um, to go with it. And I, and I quickly realized that some of my own colleagues were not watching my Sunday show because we were breaking this story every Sunday. And then I would come in on Monday and it was like, wait, what? How did that happen? And it did happen because we had John Ratcliffe on and Devin Nunes on who told us exactly what was in those you know, classified documents. What role did uh, Brennan and Clapper play in all of this? Well, I believe that it was really the CIA and and Brennan who was siphoning information into the FBI. And apparently Hillary Clinton's very close friends and colleagues were siphoning information to John Brennan at the CIA. I think the CIA and Clapper and Brennan were very much involved with all of this. I don't want to get ahead of William Barr because the AG is looking at all of this, but as far as the evidence proves and what we know so far, it was really the CIA siphoning information into the FBI, and it was a handful of people at the FBI doing this because, remember, most cases, when you've got an important case, it's done in the field offices. It's not done at headquarters. This investigation into Russia meddling and Trump colluding with Russia was done at headquarters. So there was only a few people who were dealing with it, a lot of the agents were wondering, why is this at headquarters and not in a field office? I also remember I've spent time in Russia. When I was at CNBC, I went to Russia several times. I interviewed Medvedev. I went to this uh, conference, uh, the St. Petersburg International Economic Summit that I would go to every year. I went for five years. 
And every time I would go to Russia, I would always hear the same thing. And from high ups in the Treasury Department, this was Hank Paulson's Treasury Department, who advised me, don't bring your BlackBerry to Russia. As soon as you go to Russia, they will have, you're in their open airspace, they will have all of your contacts, all of your emails. So I remember time and time again going to Russia with a different phone, a different number, a different email, and then everything went through my assistant in New York, and if there was anything important, she would send it to me. So I had that knowledge about Russia as well. Russia has been meddling in the U.S. for a decade. Let me ask you, can Barr do it? The empire is not going to uh, be passive on this. They know what's coming. He's pointed a good guy to investigate this, but do you think he can pull it off? I think he can, Steve. I think that this is an honest broker, and I think that well, he, we know he's honest. Yeah, but can, I, I think he, he came out. I think it? he came out of retirement uh, to for the good of the country. He's a real patriot. Look, he he met Donald Trump two weeks before he became AG. They have no relationship. He's not like you know some guy who's just protecting Donald Trump. He saw what took place. And I agree. We have to trust our FBI. We have to trust our DOJ. And, you know, someone once said to me, people do not go back into the water until they know the shark is dead. So people are not going to trust the FBI again until we actually see some accountability. And you can't have people who have these positions of power to take it upon themselves to change a situation. This president was duly elected. He is the president. You may not like his personality. You may not like some of his policies. Fine, but he's the president. And you can't take it upon yourself just because you are the lead investigator at the FBI to decide you're going to stop it. And all of those texts we saw between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page said it all. We needed insurance policy. Obama wants to know everything that's going on. Uh, The White House is dealing with this now. Uh, We'll stop him. I mean, all of these texts were pretty clear on what these folks were doing. So speculate, why has the media been, with few exceptions, so passive on what is perhaps the biggest political scandal in American history? And, you know, this is really what saddens me, because I think that over the last couple of years, the media has, or some in the media, have decided that all of the things that we deem important and incredibly valuable as free Americans, as patriots of this great country, all of a sudden, they no longer matter. I'm talking about due process, innocent until proven guilty, the ability to not be wiretapped for no reason. For some reason, my friends in the media have decided this is not important. We saw that play out in the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. The chaos there. We saw that play out with George Papadopoulos and Carter Page. And the media is not even talking about this story. Why? Because it's Trump. They hate him. And they just don't want to talk about it. And so they'd rather throw out all of these things that we deem as important in our democracy. They'd rather throw that out than give him any credit. And they have no sense of precedent. This can be used against them someday. That's right. Those kind of methods. That's why for those people who I've met who've said to me, like yourself, you know what? Good job on that. I, I know that you're a patriot. I know that you know what I mean because for, for the last two years, none of this for me was about Donald Trump. This is not about Donald Trump. This is about America. You cannot use your position of power to put your finger on the scale and change an election. No. 
This is America. This is a free country and a democracy. This is how we do it. We vote. The reaction of the media you saw graphically with two interviews you had with Donald Trump. You have an interview with Trump. You make news, but the media slams you because you didn't insult him or you know, go after him on this, that, or the other thing. But you made news on several topics. Then you have another interview. You have to bring up John McCain. The interview, in effect, is shut down, and you regret that you couldn't uh, discuss other topics you wanted to discuss. So the first interview where you get news, boo. The second interview where you didn't get what you wanted in certain topics, oh, this is great. He didn't like you. Or, that's right. <laughs> I, you know, that's right. It's, you, you, you're, you're such an incredible observer because I don't think I've ever talked to you about this, but you're absolutely right. I, I, I'm sitting there. The fir- th- that earlier interview, we made so much news on Iran, on China, the chocolate cake moment when he was telling uh, President Xi that he was sending strikes to uh, Syria. Um, and then the sec- and then the next interview, I, I, I asked him why he's you know criticizing John McCain. I know I said to him, I know, Mr. President, you punch back, but he can't punch anymore. He's dead. Why do you keep bringing this up? And he said, that's fake news. This is fake news. And, and so, yeah, the interview gets shut down. I didn't get a chance to ask about China, which I really wanted to. I wanted to ask more about policy. Um, and the media loved it. They said, oh, good for Maria. He called her fake news. You know, so it's all about trashing the president. If I don't, look, I call balls and strikes. When he had that Helsinki conference, I thought it was horrible. I said it on the air. When there are things that he says that I'm a questionable, we call balls and strikes on my show. But- I'm not going to ignore policy and its impact. I'm not going to ignore the things that he's done that actually have been very good, like the economic policy. And if I don't slam him every day, I must be in Trump's pocket. That's how they view it. Well, a good example on the policy side. In December of 2017, you wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal. You make the valid point. Deregulation taxes were fundamentally changing the course of the U.S. economy. You were slammed by your peers in the media. How dare you do something like this? How dare I write an op-ed in the journal that says the economy is great because of these policies? Uh, It's just extraordinary. When you look at the number of regulations that we had in place under President Obama, and then you recognize the reason that businesses were sitting on cash for so many years and the reason that any acquisitions that were happening was American companies acquiring companies in Ireland so that they could go move their headquarters to Ireland because we had such an anti-competitive corporate tax rate. I mean, that's what that piece was about. The, the amount of regulations and the amount of red tape was actually hurting the economy. President Trump comes in and reverses all of that. And what a surprise, we get three and three and a quarter percent and even 4% growth one quarter uh, over the last couple of years. Um, you've speculated, uh, not speculate, but believe that uh, Barr is going to see this thing through. Give us your observations on how you see other things playing out. Obviously, 2020, trade, deregulation continuing there. Mulvaney seems really determined to make sure that initiative is not lost. Yeah, I mean, I think what's going on right now is you have a real effort on the part of the Democrats to to stop President Trump, to either take him down or make it real difficult for him to have any more wins. You know, he, he campaigned on a border wall. They will not give him any money for the wall. They're refusing it. I think what it's setting up for 2020 is a real report card on what got done 
under the Democrats. You know, what, in fact, did get done other than all of these investigations? They want to see his tax returns. They want to investigate every corner of Donald Trump's life. I mean, make no mistake. In America, we don't find our guy and then look for the crime. That's not how America works. In America, we identify a crime, and then we find out who committed that crime. But here, the Democrats have their guy. They're good. They've got Donald Trump, and they're just going to keep investigating until they find something that he did wrong. I, I think this is all going to come, come back to haunt people. I think the American people have shown very clearly that they are smart, they are informed, and they want to see progress in our country. And the fact that, you know, we're not seeing anything else getting done, like health care, like immigration, you know, like economic policy, like trade, and, and we're not getting anything done in terms of the Democrats, I think people are going to remember this going into 2020. At this point, Joe Biden seems to be the candidate, but I don't know what will happen with Joe Biden. I don't know. There are reports that he has an issue with China, uh, that he could have other issues, but definitely if it was Donald Trump versus Joe Biden, I think that uh, the American people will want to see what got done under Joe Biden and what got done under Donald Trump. It is about the economy, I think. Media's obviously changed. You've seen it dramatically over your career. Uh, give us your observations on that. You've uh, warned, yes, cable is changing f substantially, but the death of cables, like Mark Twain, has been uh, reported many times. So give us your observations, starting with the fact during your show, you're relentlessly using social media. I am. I'm, I'm tweeting and posting things because I feel like we have so many fantastic guests every morning that sometimes they say things that I want to make sure that my viewers heard just in case they're not watching. So I'll, you know, tweet out such and such just said this, so-and-so just said that um, during the live show because I think my viewers increasingly are watching TV but also on social media. They've got their phone in their hands when they've got the TV on. Look, I think, as you say, the death of cable has been reported for years and years. At this point, we continue to see the advertising dollars in television. I mean, yes, the growth is online for sure. And I think, you know, as journalists, it's ours to lose in terms of our leadership. What I mean by that is content is once again king. You know, people want good content. And I believe people will pay for good content. So... As long as I'm doing the job that I should be doing, a good job, making sure to uncover the right stories, making sure to have smart interviews, smart reporting, I think that it doesn't matter where that content is distributed. It's ours to lose in terms of our reputation. So I think you really have to make sure that you're doing what people want to see, doing good reporting, and then you have lots of options in terms of distribution. I'm not worried. Women CEOs, you've made mention of this, they don't seem to have broken through there yet among large companies. Do you see that changing or do you see other things happening that are being overlooked where women are really moving forward? I do think women are moving forward quite a bit. I mean, we've seen dramatic change just in the 25 years that I've been watching, certainly from the time that I was on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. You look at the exchange today, there's many more women and there's many more senior women in business. But you're right, when the CEO office 
is not penetrated enough. You have to wonder why. Why don't we see more CEOs that are female in the corner office? And all I could say is I think women have, and this is a generalization, I recognize that, but women like to have a lot of balls in the air. And oftentimes we leave the job for whatever reason to go have a baby, to come back, to to go do something else and then come back. And the hierarchy puts us at a lower spot. There's also the board. The board of directors is often filled with men. Men needs to, need to think more about how can we put women in there. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm clear. To me, it's always been about performance. It, to me, it's not about women versus men, but about the best person to get that job. And I'd really like to see that continue. I know that there are plenty of women who are better than men in their equal jobs, but they're not getting the job for some reason. I don't know why. But I think that when you just look at performance, performance is going to be hard to beat if you're a woman doing well. I don't know why. I I don't have a good answer for why we don't see more female other than women like to do a lot of things and they, they make a choice whether to stay and, 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 you know, do a certain job or do a couple of jobs or go and, you know, go have a baby and do that job and then come back. Share with us how you stay so well informed. It's prodigious, the subjects you have to cover. I, I read a lot. You know, I read, I read all the time um, different things. I'm obviously reading the, the obvious ones, the journal, Forbes, um, the New York Times, the, the Post every morning, the Financial Times. But I also talk to a lot of people. I think probably the most important way that I prepare for interviews is talking with people. So I'll call people who know the person, don't know the person, have worked with the person, know the issues, like him, don't like him or her. And so I try to get a full picture of who that person is that I'm interviewing, uh, to speak to enough people as possible, and that helps fill in the holes that may be there from just reading material. How do you uh, rest up? Uh, you've mentioned in the past bicycling. You're also doing yoga. I love yoga. Yoga is so great. I'm, I'm uh, doing that a couple times a week because it's just, they, they all say to me, people say to me, you're only as young as your spine. You want to have a long and flexible spine, and that's what yoga does. I bike a lot. This weekend, I must have biked at least 120 miles wow. uh, all weekend because I'll do 28 miles a day. Um, in my house, which is the, the, where this perfect road is to bike, it's, it's 14 miles each way. So I do 28 a day and, um, I love biking. So that's definitely something that I'm, I'm doing a lot of biking and yoga. Vacations. Do you have well, a vacation? For most, of my vaca- <laughs> most of my vacations I've done, uh, spas and hiking, uh, cause I, I like actual physical activity, but this past, um, end of year, I went to Morocco. I had such a great trip. I bought fantastic things at the Sook. It was really a great experience and education for me to go to Marrakesh. First time I've ever been there for New Year's Eve we went. So I did have a real vacation at the end of last year. Great. And you're a Yankees fan. Always. That makes you perfect. Maria, (laughs) thank you very much. Thank you, Steve. And now, my reads of the week. Two articles. The first article is called, No, the Rich Don't Get Rich at the Expense of the Poor. It's written on Forbes.com by contributor Rainer Ziedelman. Makes the point, economics properly done is not zero-sum. We all benefit when we all have a chance to move forward. Your gain is not at somebody else's expense. We have to keep reminding ourselves of that as we get immersed in trade deals and trade war talk. Another article, 
relates to all of this impeachment talk. It's written by Charles Lipson, and you can find this one at realclearpolitics.com. The title is, A Hard Rain's Gonna Fall on Obama's Bad Cops and Spies. The point he makes is, and Maria Bartiromo refers to this as well, a lot of things were done in 2016 and 2017 by Obama administration officials that are really scandalous. You'll get a taste of it in this story. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.